0: Hello, and welcome to Maine Golf Talk. We are your hosts, Zach Donlow and Henry Fall. In these podcasts, we'll be discussing what makes Maine Golf so special. We'll be sharing our own experiences
1: and knowledge as both players and coaches. We'll also branch out to discuss hot topics in the game and chat with special guests to hear their stories, all to keep you in the know and help you improve your game. Let's get into today's podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Maine Golf Talk. We are joined by John Weir, founder of Mental Golf Academy. John also works at the Mike Bender Golf Academy and is caddying for Austin Treslow, a name you guys probably know well from our recent episodes with Austin. Um, John, how are you?
2: I'm doing great. How are you guys? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Oh, it's a privilege. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, so we, we heard you're down in uh, Pennsylvania, is that right?
2: Yeah, I'm getting adjusted back to this cold weather and the snow. Uh, I got used to the tropical, you know, all that good weather, but my blood's a little thin right now, so I'm a little colder than usual, it feels like. Yeah, what,
1: what were a few of the, the the hot spots you guys went to
2: this year? What were your, some of your favorites? Uh, uh, hot spots on tour this year had to be, I mean, top of my list had to be Pumpkin Ridge out in Oregon. Pumpkin yeah. Bay was was an awesome track, and outside of the weather, uh, Victoria National in Indiana, amazing. And for a public course that anybody could go play, the track out in Omaha—I want to say it's Indian Creek—was mm-hmm. outstanding. I mean, it's definitely a test, so it's going to put you know put you through the ringer. But outstanding golf course, especially being a public track, you you couldn't get any better than that.
1: So how, looking back on the season, how did you feel it went? Was it a productive season? It sounds like Austin had some, you know, some good results.
2: Yeah, I thought it was a really productive year. I mean, there was no anticipation on the learning curve that one's going to go through first year out on tour. I mean, especially for me as a caddy, uh, learning to chart different things and get the information he needs and the, and the level of preparation for each week um, was beyond what I anticipated at first. Um, but it was exciting. I mean, a lot of learning, learning how to play in altitudes, learning how to adapt to different course situations and conditions. Um, but it was very, very productive. I was pleased with the year and looking forward to getting out there next season. So
1: how did you first link up with Austin?
2: I, I met Austin at the Mike Bender Golf Academy. So when I, when I moved to Florida and started researching for mental golf type, um, Austin was in a place in his game where he was looking to get an edge and overcome a little bit of some mental hurdles. And uh, that's where Mike and I, uh, Mike introduced him to me. And I've been working with him now for about six years and watched him just keep rising up to the top and watch his talent level explode. And it's, it's been really exciting to be a part of his journey.
1: That's very cool. So you've kind of seen him come up. What, how old was he when you first met him? Like 18, 19?
2: Yeah, he had to be about 18 or 19 years old. I, I think yeah. he had just come down from Virginia and was starting up with Rollins and getting back to work with Mike at the academy. So yeah, it was uh, he was a young guy, but he was still one to look up to then. I mean, he was still six six and however he <laughs> was. And um, but yeah, he's a great guy. I've watched him mature and, and just like watch his talent blossom like that. Um, it's really cool to be able to have that that glimpse into into a pro's life like that.
1: Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, he's talked a lot about the structure that is in place at the, the Bender Golf Academy and how that's really helped him as kind of having one coach and sort of one mindset. Um, so it sounds like that you guys probably connected on that.
2: Yeah, 100%. And, I mean, history shows when you look at the greatest players of all time, they have typically have stayed with their same coach all through the years and uh, ride out those plateaus and then get the breakthroughs and things together. I think a lot of players jump ship on their coaches a little too early. Um, So it's nice to see a player like Austin staying um, on that track with Mike and continuing to work with him and, and grow with him as a coach.
1: Yes, Absolutely. So, John, let's talk a little bit about your background and, and, and how you got into the game. If you could just give us a little summary of your, your story.
2: Sure. I, I went to school at Point Park University. I have a psychology degree, um, but I didn't go the traditional psychological routes as far as helping people. I was actually really intrigued around 18 years old with hypnosis. And I would never have thought in a million years that I would have got involved with that. Right. It's like you don't ever ask a kid when they're growing up, you know, what do you want to be when you get older? And someone says, well, I want to be a hypnotist. You know, it doesn't. That's not normally the situation. But we went to, you know, I was at a really rough point in my life. I mean, I was really negative. Things weren't going well. Um, Didn't really have any direction. And my parents dragged me to this motivational program. It was this big success seminar. And we ended up having breakfast with Zig Ziglar. If anybody's out there ever heard of motivational speakers, Zig Ziglar is like the man. He's like the Tiger Woods of motivational speaking and perhaps maybe the most positive person in the world. And, And we were having breakfast with him and I didn't want to be there at all. I mean, I was as negative as it could be. But that optimism started rubbing off on me. And throughout the day, I heard this speaker. He was talking about mental empowerment and performance and things. And I was really intrigued by what he had to say. So we signed up for a program. And my sister and I went there. And, of course, you know, they had that little bait and switch thing. You could get your money back on the first day, you know, if you don't like the program, turn in your materials. Well, of course, it was the second day that they started talking about hypnosis, right? So I looked at my sister. I said, you got to be kidding me. Of course, they're going to do it on day two when I can't get my money back, right? She goes, you know, why don't you just relax and be patient? Well, anyways, my sister got picked out of like maybe 500 people to go up on stage to be the person to be hypnotized as a demonstration. (laughs) And I was like really excited. So I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm saying there's my sister was valedictorian of Notre Dame, right? Very, very smart. I was, I had all these misconceptions about like the movie portrayals and all these things. I'm like, there's no way this is going to work for my sister. Sure enough, he hypnotized her. She was, she was great at going into it and using her mind in that way. And basically what had sold me was he told her, gave her a suggestion that your body's as stiff and rigid as a steel beam. Nothing could bend you, harm you, hurt you in any way. You're strong and solid as steel. And literally, my sister's body stiffened up as if it was a plank, a board. They tilted her down, laid her face down across two chairs, suspended across them. And the speaker went up and stood on the small of my sister's back and was presenting his lecture from her back. And at at first, my brotherly instinct was ready to kick in and like run up there and go, you know, like, what are you doing? But then I sat back and I'm like, you know, that's my sister. I, I really couldn't deny it at that point, the power of the mind. And at that point, I mean, I just saw the vision open up in my mind. I said, there's something there. And I really want to learn how to leverage my mind and learn how to maximize this because that was an amazing demonstration. And, and later on, I ended up repeating that with myself and had people stand. But I, I went uh, on my back. You know, If anything went wrong, I'd rather be able to fold rather than break, right? Right. Um, but that, that was the start of it all. And I remember I got on the phone. My parents after that I said, Mom, Dad, I know what I'm going to do with my life. And they go, oh, what's that? I said, I'm going to be a hypnotist. And she, they go, oh, you know, <laughs> where we go wrong with this boy, right? <laughs> Funny enough, oh, though, man. my dad was a psychology teacher at the time before he started his travel business. And he's like, you know, th- we know that this is effective. I mean, it's been used in a lot of medical situations and things. But he said, can you, you know, make money with that and make a living? And so my initial route started. I put myself through school doing hypnosis, started a practice, ended up doing a lot more of the behavioral things, like with the hospitals, helping with uh, smoke cessation, weight loss, helping people who couldn't eat and needed to help boost their appetites, things like this. And, and that really weighed on me. And it wasn't until maybe a couple years into it, I met a golfer at Starbucks. He happened to see my bag and he goes, wow, you, go, you hypnotize people. I said, I do. He goes, you ever work with golfers? And my standard answer back then was absolutely, right? Because I figured I could book the person a couple weeks in, down the road and I could work it out and figure out how to work successfully <laughs> with them. Well, he goes, well, tomorrow I leave for Mesquite, Nevada for REMAX Long Drive Championship. He's like, do you think you could work with me? So I, I did some session work with him over the phone. I think he finished third or fourth, had his best finish of all time. His peers noticed all these changes. So then all of a sudden I started getting all these calls, from some of the long drive guys and helping them in the, in the competitions. And then I came back and his network started snowballing all the guys from Oakmont and different places around the Pittsburgh area started all coming in. And I said, you know, I really love working with the athletes the most growing up an athlete. I mean, it was more of a natural fit for me, but it wasn't until then till I saw like this perfect marriage between golf and the mental game and some of the technologies we're using for dramatic fast changes. Uh, that we're enduring for players. And it, it evolved over time with the hypnosis into a more of streamlined system that we've came up with, which is mental golf type. And we realized once you've identified a person's mental hardwiring, you don't need any little tricks or ways or mental gymnastics to get the information into the person so they act on it because it makes sense to them and it's aligned with their natural way of doing things. And this is kind of always the question that's kind of intrigued me. It's like, why could I work with somebody and they have, you know, success, let's just say stop smoking for a year after one session where another person may have moderate success for three months or two weeks yet going through the same program. And it wasn't until we started realizing that everybody's wired slightly different. And if we can communicate the message to their wiring I mean, it just goes in right away, it makes sense, it's acted upon and it stays with the person. And so we just kept getting more and more specific and more and more tailored and individualized to the players over time. And now we're starting to learn how to bring the hypnosis aspect, which is fast learning and accelerated learning in with understanding a player's mental hardwiring or their mental golf type. And then we can have really, really dramatic breakthroughs and, and a lot of success for players.
1: You know, it's funny when we were kind of looking up your, your sort of background stuff, we saw that you were a certified hypnotist. And I, we kind of had a bet like to see if you were going to hypnotize us over this, this podcast, how that would go.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time since I've done any like real formal session work, but we <laughs> definitely could do it. in fact, you might already be going into it right now aren't you? Oh, great. <laughs> oh,
1: awesome. So when you, when you work with these long drive guys, what was sort of the, the byproduct you found? Like, are you talking like swing speed or is it more just their mental approach and then their, their sort of uh, efficiency at, at contact and everything?
2: Yeah, I mean, we did a little bit of both. I mean, the guy wanted to do a lot of mental rehearsal because in the way the long drive, I, I mean, I haven't done a lot of work with them in a long time, but I believe the format is, is they get five balls and they have, I think two minutes or so, to hit the five balls and they keep their best shots. And so we were going through that sequence of him staying calm and relaxed, maintaining his nice tempo and his swing, and doing a lot of mental rehearsal of, of his execution. Um, also creating triggers so that he's staying at peace and staying relaxed. You know, Tiger used to get hypnotized a lot. When he was, I think it was nine or 11 years old, he started working with Dr. Jay Brunza who was a Navy psychologist and he was getting hypnotized on a weekly basis. And during Tiger's dominant years, he was using a a trigger where he was doing this double blink over the ball. And that double blink was there to set into motion these patterns that him and Dr. Brunza have been working on. And so through consistency and repetition, these things get anchored into the brain. And so when he fires that off, he's triggering relaxed states almost instantaneously. And so we were doing similar triggers, like when he's gripping his club, his body is loose, his mind is clear, and he's completely relaxed. And so we're making fearless motions. Now what we've come to realize is the main thing that stands in the way of an athlete's performance, especially in golf, is stress. And that's really where our main focus is. And when people hear stress, they kind of think of it in terms of like being all stressed out at work or you know, kind of that meltdown, but stress is a lot more subtle than what people realize. And so a lot of them are, are experiencing what we call boiled frog syndrome. And, and people always laugh at my metaphor, but if I asked you how you boil a frog, right, what do you do? If you throw a, a frog in boiling hot water, it, per, it per, you know, perceives the heat jumps out immediately. But if you put a frog in lukewarm water and you slowly turn up the dial, what's gonna happen is, is it doesn't perceive any of the differences in temperature because it's happening gradually. And next thing you know, they're burning up in the pot. And most golfers are actually stressed on the course and they don't even realize it. And why that's so important is, is when you get stressed out, your brain starts releasing the fight or flight response. And now this can be triggered by a real threatening situation, like someone points a gun at you or you encounter a wild animal on the golf course or whatever or through a perceived or imagined threat. So for a lot of players, that first tee could be a a really threatening situation. And so they trigger their fight or flight. And when this happens, all these chemicals get released in the brain like cortisol and adrenaline, norepinephrine, but the cortisol literally inhibits your motor cortex. So what that's happening is, is that's the part responsible for your golf swing, your coordination, synchronistic muscle motions, uh, all your motor programs, all your coordinated movements, all your fine uh, fine, fine muscle skills or f- quick twitch muscles, all this stuff gets suppressed when we're in stress. And a lot of players, they step up over the ball. They don't even realize that they've been trained a certain way, but it's actually counterproductive for their brain. And if they're in stress, they're going to underperform. And so going back to the long drive, guys, Most of it is, is creating mental relaxation, working on keeping the brain at peace. When the brain's at peace, the motor programs fire effortlessly. And so you, we could almost recontextualize what the zone is, is the saying it's really the absence of mental stress. If we don't have the mental stress, the body performs effortlessly and we get the best out of our motion patterns all the time. And this is kind of what the, where a lot of the performance breakdowns are happening. But since people don't know about it, they immediately run back to their swing, whereas they would get more out of their swing if they learned how to reduce the things that are causing them to stress on the course.
0: So is this kind of the foundation to your uh, pre-shot routine, the, the stoplight pre-shot routine?
2: Yeah, actually, when, once we've determined your mental golf type, we actually use that that traffic light routine setup where we start with the red making a decision yellow's prep we kind of have a commitment line where we're making a shift into performance and then we got the green light believe it or not there are 16 different golfer minds out there you have one of them it's built in from birth like your hand in this and for each one of those types we have a routine setup and we actually have identified This is the specific way you need to work through each one of these zones based on the way your brain is. Then we also can pinpoint exactly where they're getting off in that routine because everybody's stress patterns are predictable. I mean, we like to think that we're really complex and unique, but at the end of the day, there is a template that is operating in all of us. And when we identify that, we actually have a tangible way now of tracking mental gain because each one of those zones – you have a right way and a wrong way of going through it. And so, yeah, this is how we build, build the routine. Uh, so generally speaking, anybody would benefit from the, the traffic light type of setup in their shot process. We just take it a lot more specific with players and tell them exactly where their focus needs to be, how they make their best decisions, and then how do these things change when we're stressed.
0: Wow. That's, uh yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, for somebody like me versus somebody like Henry, I mean, we're two completely different golfers. We got, you know, between not even just the, the fact that it's size. I mean, my mental is completely different than his. And so it should be, you know, individualized to me and to
2: Henry. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it's like the biomechanics for your brain are getting like a mental fitting, right? Like you go out and play with Henry's clubs. It's not going to be the right fit for you, right? You, you get your clubs built for you. Well, I don't know why we haven't done this before in the mental game. I mean, we literally build it around your specific mental hardwiring. And, and for people to know what the hardwiring encompasses is we have four main facets in our brain that are built in. One is how you use your mental energy. How do you you direct it? How do you keep yourself recharged? Another aspect is how we perceive things or focus. And believe it or not, there are two different focus styles, similar to right-hand and left-hand. One of them is dominant for you. Just on that note, I mean, think about the difference between Justin Rose and Bubba Watson, right? Or, Or like a Henrik Stenson versus like a Seve. Like, you can't coach those players the same way. And oftentimes we try to lump everybody into this one size fits all phenomena in the mental game. But what stresses you out, Zach, and what stresses me out versus Henry, these are all going to be different things. But the cool thing is, is it's predictable based on your personality? And what was really scary was when I was doing a lot of the interviewing with players from all around the world, when you have a similar golf type, people literally expressed it with the exact same adjectives. They answered questions in the same way. And these people were thousands of miles away from each other with no contact. And I have I have audios lined up where you can hear them almost express it exactly the same. So if we inadvertently start training a Bubba Watson like Justin Rose, Bubba Watson doesn't make tour. He quits the game. And right. if we try to go and make it as loose and as free as Bubba is with a Justin Rose or even Austin, I mean, did you guys remember that stat list that Austin rambled through? I mean, I never even knew so many stats existed in my life until I met Austin, and he is a completely polar opposite of me. Literally, I do what Austin does when I get stressed out, and he probably does what I do when he gets stressed somewhat. But as a team, we work really well together because we have no blind spots. We're actually coming in as a whole. And if I didn't know how to talk to him, though, based on his hardwiring or the way his personality was, I guarantee you I don't have a job because right. I would have stepped in and stepped on his toes or interfered. And so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty cool once you, once you start understanding that. And these things aren't, they're very simple changes. I mean, it took me a long time to distill everything down to really simple, understandable terms. And we have it wrote out our programs that are any junior can pick this up, even if they have language challenges, and they'll be able to learn these core concepts and be able to implement them in their game. And they make such a huge difference. I mean, just to give you an example, I worked with Seminole State College. Uh, It's a JUCO school out in Lake Mary. Uh, First year I went with the program and we implemented the program. We won the program's first national championship. Second year, we finished second, second, and then we won back to back. In six years, we had a total of three. Well, we would have had three had COVID not hit. We were statistically blowing everybody out and would have claimed our third championship, so we kind of claimed that. But it would be about three and six years with them. And uh, another guy I worked with a lot, Chris Hill, uh, he was a D1 uh, assistant coach at Houston. We brought them back to the national championship um, the first year I started working with him. He won Jan Strickland Award that year for assistant coach of the year. He went to Pacific. Um, We implemented this program with an inherited team. And that team boosted, 100 I think, 37 or 173, one or the other, power ranking spots in the first season. We went from 200th in the country into the top 100 back in the 75. We went to Concordia. He got a new job down there. We got in their school's first conference championship. Uh, and we broken all of the school's records every year, each one that followed. I think he said our winning percentage at his programs was 66% over seven years, which wow. is crazy cool and, and almost like unbelievable. But what we've done is is we've taken all the players, we put them through our simple assessment, and then we coach them on an individual basis all year. So I was telling coach what to do and how to say and how to manage the players on the course, and, and we're teaching them specifically what these players need to do for their brain. And when you combine that in with your team concepts, uh, it just produces a recipe of success that continues to kind of i mean I know it shocks me still i have never anticipated it would have those types of results um, yeah, yeah, it, it continues to happen again and again
1: that's incredible, and you know it just makes me think of coaching as a whole and being a golf coach and, and in the pga and and how um, you know, it's really all-encompassing now. You really have to take a holistic approach and, and not just teach uh, technique. It, it does become mental. And, and teaching, um, you have to take the student in mind, and, and are they analytical? Are they going to want a bunch of uh, technical thoughts and facts? Like it sounds like Austin is a little bit more up that alley working with vendor. Um, and you know, coming from Mac O'Grady background, all that stuff. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of uh technical um teaching there. But uh, you know, and then there's some that like you said, like Bubba Watson, who's claims to have never had a lesson and does more based on feel and just kinda goes about his business. I mean, look at Dustin Johnson, he's the number one player in the world. And if somebody tried to teach him like Mac O'Grady taught his students, I don't think Dustin would be the number one player in the world. So um you know what you're saying is just it. It, it definitely rings true when you're when you're um, looking from a coaching perspective.
2: Yeah, and our goal is is like what worked really well for us is me coming from the mental coach position and being able to coach their swing coach or the college coach. We're able to deliver the same message to the player, so there's not any contradiction or conflict of message, which works really well. It's my opinion that one of my goals is is to kind of Work a mental coach out of the picture if I could, where the swing coach could, one, have the ability to understand how their players are wired, how they think, how they're going to operate, what they do best, what they do stressed right away. And that way, you as the swing coach can be directing them, not only with the swing, but communicating your message about how you're training them, because the message is always pretty good. It's just, are we communicating in a way that the player will receive it all the time? and be able to assimilate it into the game. So it accelerates the communication process. But if you as the swing coach knew where their swing was, but it could also assist them mentally because you had their blueprint in place, it's one less voice to create more stress or conflict or what we're going out there to do as far as our goals. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do is to help, you know, everybody create more success. I'm not going to say the swing coach's name, uh, but it was a really prolific swing coach. And what he was saying was, he goes, I have about 30% success of seeing players really thrive. And he believed a lot of that was the way the message or the instruction was being communicated or then how they're setting up their time. I mean, I even had one player, he missed tour by two shots. It was maybe six, seven years ago. He left his coach. I mean, talk about a hardwiring difference. He left his coach because he said when he went there, he did too much small talk for the first five, ten minutes. And he said, I'm paying for the hour. I want to get right to work and and be on this. And he goes, I waste too much time. And it wasn't because of the instruction, but just because that coach didn't understand how that player was set up and respected that time. So when he got in there, he was the bullet, boom, 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 let's get to work. Had he done that, he would still be having that high-level player, uh, you know, at his facility and under his tutelage. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're trying to help that out because a lot of, you know, there's so many things in the general instruction that actually are counterproductive for players. Like even the whole notion, like when you look at a lot of the mental coaching books, you got to look at when they're written too. Um, A lot of them didn't have any technology to validate whether or not they were, what they were saying was valid or not. And so oftentimes there's these claims put out there because one player did it that way. And then the mental coaches want to try to make everybody like that, like, hey, be reactionary to a target. Well, little does the golf world know that for 80% of the population, that thought of going and staring out at the target actually is going to create mental stress for 80% of the playing population. So immediately what happens to the players? They go and they're striping it. They're hitting it great. They're feeling confident. They're coming off lessons. They're feeling good. They go to the course and they use their brain improperly. And again, what happens? That mental stress, they don't even realize it. It suppresses their motor cortex. Now their swing's inhibited. You have all this adrenaline, so the heart race is bumping up, and that changes mm-hmm. your motor functions, right? And then you have norepinephrine, which is locking up the body. So that, this simple shift in focus is doing so much to the swing. And it's breaking the swing down more than the motion patterns breaking down because everybody has their good. Our goal is, is to help bring out that good more often. And, and it starts in your mind because you can't perform anything in life. If your brain without starting it in your brain, if you don't have your mind active first, you're dead and you can't do anything. Right? So everything's starting there. What players don't realize is, is if they're starting that process in a perception or a, a framework of stress, you have all these other byproducts of these chemical releases going on. And it's literally your biology fighting you. You're like, it's your own biology working against you. Whereas if we can start that process knowing, Hey, this is exactly what my mind's supposed to do. They focus on it. The brain's relaxed. Now we're starting to see those alpha rhythms and things come up and you watch the performance. I mean, it's, it's night and day different. It's kind of like, I'm a, I'm a righty. If you told me to throw a ball at a target with my left hand, I know I wouldn't feel confident. If I was trying to throw it, I'd look all goofy. It would be weird. But the moment you said, okay, now do it with your right, my confidence comes back like that in an instant. And the same things are mentally hold true. When you start going into what your dominant designed to do, now the game gets better and we're getting more of the performance on the course.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, because – you're coming at it from a a sort of measuring standpoint, right? And you see that throughout the game now with club fitting and TPI and basically catering these um, services based on your actual physical and mental makeup. Um, You know, you look at Mark Blackburn and, and him winning the national teacher of the year for the PGA and what he's been able to accomplish with measuring his players TPI and and going through a whole process before they even hit a ball. I mean, you're talking an hour and a half. So this guy you just mentioned who wants to use all that time up, I mean, I, I guess if he's getting a lot of uh, measurements out of it, that would be helpful. But certainly um, it seems like what you're what you're doing what you've been able to accomplish really falls in line with what you're sort of seeing in the game now. And I, I did want to uh, talk quickly about Marissa Steen and what you were able to do with her, you know, uh, we played a practice round with her on the LPGA tour. Um, you know, I, I guess what you kind of were able to accomplish with her. And then also if you could just summarize what it would look like if, if I was a potential student and wanted to work with you.
2: Sure. It's been a while since I've seen Marissa. I hope she's doing well. If she's listening to this program. I wanted to say hello. Marissa is, Marissa is, one of the best ball strikers I've ever seen. I mean, she, I said, Marissa, where are you starting the ball shaping? And she goes, no, I just hit it straight. And, and sure enough, she does too. Yep. You know, it's just one after another. Great ball striker. Um, you know, a lot of things that I'm doing with Marissa is what I do with a lot of players. I mean, the first thing we do is we, we put them through the assessment. And so the assessment's really simple. It ta- we have it all online. If anybody wants to go take it right now, you can get your, your golf type for free and know what your letters and things are. It's at mentalgolftype.com. The first thing that we do though is verify. Like for me and from my perspective, I'm looking to get a verified, confirmed personality type. And even on our online assessment, there is a verification where you get to go through and make sure everything we're doing is matching up and making sure it's correct. Now, here's a, a staggering statistic though uh, that we found that people, when they go through the golf evaluation versus where their actual hardwiring and personality type is, 94 percent of players have a mismatch Mm. so that means 94 percent of the golf population is already doing something right now in their game that's creating stress and holding them back and you could speculate that the six percent are those ones who've naturally kind of figured this out whether good coaching or reflection and these are your high level pros yeah Uh, so the first thing we want to do is verify. Once we have the personality type, we're, we're in great shape. And the first thing we do is I'd sit with Marissa or any other player, and we would be going through each one of those facets, making sure it's correct, and then seeing where some of those areas are off in their game and getting an assessment from there. Um, next thing we do is immediately go right into the pre-shot routine. So the number one performance skill, at least from the mental game in in golf, is going to be your pre-shot routine and how you're working through those processes. So we're going to introduce those those zones that we've created and then start showing the player the right way and the wrong way that they go through it. And again, these things are predictable. So even if they don't say anything, I I know how they're processing the shot. And, And for anybody listening out there, the content and situation can obviously change, right? Um, you're on this hole and you hit this bad shot or whatever, and now you're dealing with it, but the underlying context on how the brain's working is the same. And so we go and immediately start working on the routine and and going back to what you're saying with measurements, I think what makes us unique versus the other programs is we have a way of qualifying your process on the course. And a qualified process would be going through each one of those zones and doing it successfully and correctly based on your mental golf type. Now, Dr. Uh, Michael Larden, who worked with um, Phil Mickelson and a lot of the Olympic athletes and things, he, he put together some research and he found something pretty staggering. He said to make it to the PGA Tour, you have to be able to execute your process 90% or better over the four-day period. And again, when you say, well, 90%, well, what does that mean? Well, here we kind of have some generic terms, but when we bring in the mental golf type, we actually have a way of being able to go through it and say, yes, I got a check mark on that one or no, I got an X. To win on the PGA Tour, believe it or not, you have to have over 95% confident, qualified processes for four days it's very demanding and difficult to do. I mean, at that level, when you're shooting in the 60s, you can maybe have two shots off maybe to hit that 95 mark. So that means that 95% of your shots are rip, roar, and confident doing things the way you're designed to do. If you look at a club pro, a a decent club pro, they're going to be in the range of maybe 35 to 50% at best. A high-level guy like a Corn Fairy Tour, you're going to see him around in the 80s high level, really productive college player, maybe in the seventies. But so our goal with all the players is one, let get you to design your routine in and out so that you know what to do and what are your indicators of stress. Then from there, we're going to go out and and try to reach that 90% number. Beyond that, what I do with my players is then I, now that we know what the real big killer of performances, which is stress, and we have the best stress program available for helping players to identify, recognize it, and make a shift based on their specific brain. Our job then is to go out and take them to the course and put them through the ringer. And my job is to try to make it as stressful, as demanding, as uncomfortable as I possibly can make it on hey, the course.
1: an obstacle course, just like Brett McCabe cute. says.
2: Look, so because here's the reason. Players make the error, at least if you're a tournament player, of trying to make your practice round or your tournament rounds feel like a practice round. It'll never, ever, ever happen because they are completely two different games. One has a consequence. One doesn't. So the moment you tee it up in a tournament, you either have the glory of the reward or you have the consequence of failure. And those things are stuff that now you have to deal with that can create a lot of mental stress. We talked to these green berets, and, and on our podcast, we did an interview with a Navy SEAL commander. He was SEAL Team Three's commander for 20 years, never lost a man, never lost a mission. Their training philosophy is: is they believe no one can rise to the occasion. I'll repeat it: nobody can step up or rise to the occasion. You fall back to your training. So what happens is, as players try to train in these casual, comfortable situations, they stripe it, they go, I'm scoring well in my course. And then they go to the tournament thinking they can step up, but they don't. Now they're faced with new things. Our job has always been, and why we've had so much success is we've, we turned it on the opposite. We've tried to make our practice so hard that yeah. whenever you get to a tournament time, you're smiling and it feels easy. Now, how do you do that? We put players through qualifying conditions like this. If you miss a fairway off the tee, it's out of bounds. If you miss the green on your approach shot, it's a plus one penalty. If you miss your first putt, you draw back all the way until you finish out your putts. Players used to call this hell golf, and and they're qualifying for the team under these conditions. And we actually had a player out in California through this. He shot 62-62 under those conditions. And we go, well, how did you do that? He goes, well, I never thought about my consequence. I thought about what I wanted to do. And yep. this is what we're trying to do. So then they get to the tournament. They've already dealt with tremendous pressure. They've already learning in their practice how to overcome their stress because we're, we're bringing it to their face. So now they're not in a tournament learning. They're there competing.
1: This, you know, this is absolute gold right here because, you know, I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts over the past year. and. Um, you know, uh, on the mark and, uh, me and my golf and all this stuff. And, you know, when I, when they bring on PGA tour players, I hear this all the time is the way they practice and how it distinguishes themselves from us amateurs. And, you know, Bern Wiesberger came on and he was talking about, uh, he called it ugly practice. Basically, um, playing like US open golf in practice. And essentially, like you said, if he missed the fairway, he would have to chip out. Mm-hmm. He couldn't go for the green. So he would chip out and then he would see what he would shoot. Or you have Tiger and Jim furrick who I've heard of playing two balls, basically they play their worst ball and mm-hmm. keep track of their score. So these are great ways of sort of challenging yourself and realizing, look, it's a battle out there. It's kind of an obstacle course, like Brett McCabe has said before. And I just think that's that's excellent what you just mentioned. Um, have you uh, have you looked into vision fifty four at all with, with Lynn Marriott and Pia Nilsson? You know, yeah, they worked with I'm they familiar were
2: familiar with Vision fifty four and uh, some of yeah. the work
1: I mean they worked with Annika Swornstown. I was just curious if uh, if you've kind of seen a little bit of what they've done and um, you, I know you mentioned sort of the boxes and pre shot routine. I think that's something they they've spoken to as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, our concept is kind of is similar in nature. Uh, the difference is is we're bringing the specificity and the exact nature for your brain into a right. lot of the concepts. And what we found is, is like all of the programs out there are great and they, they work, but they're going to work for a percentage of the population. And as you find those things that are molded or designed more for your wiring, I mean, that's when you're going to have dramatic success. I just remember, uh, something with vision 54 and Anika, they were saying, you know, we, we were throwing a, you know, a lot of the different techniques at her. Right. And, and Anika said in her book, she's like, there's this one or two things that really stuck. Right. What we've done is we've streamlined that process. So we don't have to throw a lot of options out there to try to experiment and guess and test. We kind of know how you operate and what those patterns are. So we're just going to streamline and build strategies around that and scrap whatever is out of alignment with what you really need to do. And again, we, we put all this stuff to the test on the focus band. Um, we, we, we put players all through it. We're trying to create distress the when they're working their wiring or, or some of the things we're testing it all out to make sure their brain is indeed becoming relaxed in and at peace. And, and that, that's been a pretty cool thing with, with incorporating the focus band with it. But yeah I love the Vision 54 things. Um I love a lot of the things they have on the goal setting and the way that they bring a lot of fun and and creativity into the practice situations. I, I think it's excellent.
0: Wow, yeah. I mean this has been an incredible uh podcast so much uh, information. Um so but uh John thanks for sharing all this. Um we're uh we're going to jump into our wicked fire uh, we're gonna ask you a series of uh, some questions we're gonna ask you to answer them as quickly as possible and we'll uh, we'll see where uh, where this takes us uh, so first question uh,
2: your favorite golf course that you have played Oh favorite golf course I have played <laughs> Wow, I'm already not doing good on Wicked Fire. How huh? my brain was in a different place.
0: <laughs> oh, we're, we're uh, throwing, throwing that mindset into it.
2: You know, I, I like Mystic Rock out at in here in Pennsylvania.
0: Your, uh, your dream foursome?
2: Tiger, Arnold Palmer, and Austin Truslow. Oh.
0: If, uh, could you potentially hypnotize Austin so he would chip with both hands?
2: <laughs> yes.
0: Uh but I,
2: I think it's really cool that he chips one-handed. I think I, it's it's awesome. I think it's
0: it's it's incredible. I mean it, it makes a lot of sense when he was talking, you know, through the whole process. It was uh it was pretty uh uh eye-opening and I definitely have tried it after and I can't do it, but uh definitely worked for him. Uh, you're uh, the chillest player. Henry asked this one: you're the chillest player you have ever seen, the most relaxed person you've seen on the golf course.
2: The relaxed, most relaxed person I've seen on the golf course. Wow. Um, I don't know, maybe Mickey Demerat on the Corn Ferry tour. I don't know whether you want a PGA guy or, or whoever, player? anybody. You know? I mean, I'd say you know, having caddied and been on Austin's bag in a lot of situations, including a top ten in Puerto Rico, I'd have to say Austin's one of the most chill guys i've seen out there i mean he's He's in command and in control the whole time, so I got to give it to my man a t all right, speaking of a t uh, what was your uh the, the most memorable shot
0: he's hidden while you've uh been on his bag
2: most memorable shot on the bag I'd have to say um it was this bunker shot he hit on six at the Honda Classic two years ago. We were about 192 yards out, and he hit the most and craziest, cut six iron down into that lower tiered green or pin. Um, that's up there, and then also his hole out, obviously, at Puerto Rico open uh, when he dunked it from, again, 192 out and jarred it straight in on the fly. I have to say those two are side by side for me.
0: Yeah, that hole-in-one that is pretty, uh, pretty legendary. So, uh, John, thanks for, uh, jumping on with us, uh, taking the time. Um, we definitely are going to have to have you back on, um, just need to process all the, uh, the information that you've dropped <laughs> with us. Um, you know, if our listeners wanted to, uh, you know, learn their mental golf type and, uh, you know, start training where, uh, where would they go and how could they, uh, get involved?
2: Sure. You can go to mentalgolftype.com and you can sign up free right away. Go through the assessment and get your mental golf type within a couple minutes here. Uh, You can also follow us on Instagram at mentalgolftype. And I believe there's a link in your link tree as well. So uh, you can also go right through there. And we have three different products out there right now. And there's more continuously coming up. Uh, we have the level one program, which is all your base programs. That's going to give you all your wiring, what you need to know. We have a program on shot process and also structuring your practices around your hardwiring as well. So you get templates and ways to get out there and evolve in your practice. So well, that's, that's at mentalgolftype.com.
0: That's awesome. So uh, from one MGT to another, uh, John, thanks for uh, jumping on Main Golf Talk. Uh, you guys can find us on Main Golf Talk on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed this uh, podcast. We sure did. And uh, we will see you guys next time.